Welcome to the latest podcast from the Recruitment and Employment Confederation. We're bringing you the latest updates and insights from the world of recruitment to help you navigate these challenging times. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the latest edition of the REC podcast, Talking Recruitment. My name is Neil Carberry, the REC Chief Executive, and thank you for coming along to the, this latest edition of the pod as we uh, work our way through the easing of the lockdown and hopefully some form of return to normality in our business and personal lives. Been another busy week at, at the REC. Uh, probably two things to point you towards thinking about the work that we've been doing. Just on Monday, we published a new essential business lessons for recruitment leaders drawn on everything that we've been doing through the through the lockdown and the gradual opening up, drawing together that work and really making it accessible as a business guide for recruitment leaders. That's on the REC website, well worth a look. And if you're a non-REC member, you can get a, a look at some of it just by uh, registering on the, on the site. So do have a look at that. Some really interesting thoughts from a wide range of business and political and social leaders thinking through what it means to be trying to do business in this period and what happens next. The other thing to draw your attention to is just this morning, the 3rd of July, uh, we've launched the latest jobs recovery tracker. Uh, As a reminder, that's the REC scrape of 10,000 job boards across the country, looking at the trends in job placements. And what we've seen is a a further rise in uh, new job uh, placements through the last week of June, a rise of about 30,000 from the first week in June. So definitely more activity returning to the market. But as that activity returns, it's still very much a slow and steady pace, not a big snapback just yet. And that's what we'd expect if we think about most client businesses currently working through how to deal with their staff they've had on furlough and redeploying them and bringing them back on board. And we've certainly seen some big announcements from businesses, both in terms of bringing staff back and in terms of laying staff off over the last few days. For today, though, I'm delighted to welcome Matthew Taylor to the pod. Matthew is Chief Executive of the RSA and is also the Director of Labour Market Enforcement, which is the role and office that the government put put together to really coordinate labour market enforcement in, in the UK and take a more strategic role to making sure that work in the UK is good work and that we're improving how people are treated and what they get from their working lives on an ongoing basis. Matthew, welcome to the pod. Thanks, Neil. Matthew, why don't you introduce the work of the Director of Labour Market Enforcement just to kick us off and give people a feel for the normal brief of the job, and then we'll talk a little bit about the effects of this crisis. So I probably ought to have to hand what the formal role is, but I I will just tell you how I understand it in my role. I'm the interim director, it should be said. So the first thing we do is, is oversee the work of three agencies, the part of Bayes that is responsible uh, for employment agencies, which is, of course, the, 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 the area that most directly concerns the REC, the work of the part of HMRC that looks at the compliance of national living wage and the GAM Masters and Labour Abuse Authority, which looks, on the one hand, it licenses certain sectors, agriculture, and fisheries, but it also is responsible for responding to the threat of extreme labour exploitation and modern slavery. So we look at 
the operation of those agencies. We report uh, every year on how we think they're doing. We have a strategy which makes recommendations to them. And one of the things we do in the annual report is to reflect on how they've acted on those recommendations. And then the second thing we do is to play a kind of active role in relation to uh, intelligence gathering and intelligence coordination in relation to the scale of compliance and enforcement issues out there in the economy and trying to ensure that we're acting on the best intelligence and that we are coordinating our resources as most effectively as we can, given our understanding of the scale of the problem. Thanks, Matthew. And I think lots of listeners will recognise EAS as the regulator of employment agencies, and they'll have had some interaction with the inspector at various points of their their business career, and likewise the GLA and uh, National Minimum Wage Enforcement. I think it's generally the case that REC members value both the specialism of 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 enforcement across those areas and the and the knowledge that the staff bring and also the fact that there is a greater capability now for for authorities to be sharing information because we know that it tends to be the the case that one infraction can layer on top of another infraction and once someone's breaking the law in one area they might well be breaking the law in another you as you say have been interim director for a little while now and I suppose the last time we saw each other it was before uh, the coronavirus blew up and you were articulating a, a kind of a vision about the next stage of development for all of this particularly thinking you know we've got a government government now that was elected with a mandate to create some form of single enforcement body for for these areas what do you think the key success factors are going to be for uh, labour market enforcement as it moves on to the next phase? And then what's the respective role of uh, the government action that we'll always need and businesses stepping up themselves? Yeah, well, I think it's difficult to imagine anyone in my role who doesn't argue for more resources for enforcement and compliance. My predecessor, Sir David Metcalf, uh, did that. And I'm sure when I'm long gone, whoever's in my shoes or whoever's in the job equivalent to mine will continue to be arguing for more resources. The the story on resources basically is they went down pretty dramatically during the period of austerity after 2010, and then they've gone up a bit more recently, but not as much as they went down before. But the resource will never be fully adequate. And it is probably worth saying at this stage that one of the issues that we have is that we don't really have a sufficiently robust database to know what is the level of the underlying problem here. It's actually quite difficult to understand how much non-compliance is going on out in the labour market, partly because some of the people who aren't having their rights and entitlements respected won't know what those rights and entitlements are, sometimes because they'll be intimidated and worried about revealing problems that they might have, sometimes because the very people who are most vulnerable are the people it's hardest for researchers to find. So when we talk about the resource allocation, we're slightly flying blind in terms of knowing what the scale of the problem is. And before the pandemic, we were having a conversation with Bayes about hoping that they would fund a major piece of research, innovative research, that hopefully would give us that kind of baseline understanding of what's going on out there. However, I, I, you know, it is inevitable, I think, that we will never have as much resource as we would like to have to tackle this problem. And that's why I am interested in other ways in which we can address it. You know, there are many ways in which you can address it. A very important one is public information so that the public know what their rights are. And, 
you know, in certain areas, like, for example, the national living wage, you know, it is a very important uh, part of the process that the most members of the public understand what, that there is a minimum wage. And if they're receiving it, they will know uh, what it is. And HMRC, National Living Wage, go out of their way to publicise the new rates when they come in. Of course, as regulations become more complex and issues become more complex, then it becomes more difficult to rely on the public exercising their rights. And of course, that's e it's even worse when there's situations of bad, of severe exploitation where people may be fearful. Uh, so the role of business in this is extremely important in terms of, I think, on, on the one hand, and this is, I think, a challenge for, for you, Neil, when I say it's a challenge for you, I don't mean because you're doing badly, but it's just a challenge for any trade association. And that is to 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 raise, keep raising the bar in terms of what is expected to be a member of your organisation or any other kind of trade body representing your uh, sector. It needs to be that being a member of the REC is not simply an indication that you paid a little bit of money and filled in some forms, but that you're able to demonstrate good practice and that if you fail to demonstrate good practice, you won't be uh, welcome as a member of the association. So that's one way we can do that. And you and I have had conversations about that, continue to have conversations about how I can encourage you to be as brave as you can. And I know that you are doing stuff in that area. Another area is working with businesses in relation to their supply chains. So, you know, of course, and understandably, it tends to be the largest businesses that are most concerned with their reputations and the ones who spend most on marketing and have the greatest capacity, actually, to monitor what's going on. And so, you know, it's important to work with large organisations to take responsibility for what's happening in their labour supply chains. And when you see uh, a major issue being exposed, like happened recently with Operation Force, it's important to use that as an opportunity to alert organisations to the dangers of what can be happening in their supply chain. So there you had an example of, of, of people in the horticultural sector who were ultimately were supplying some of our big name national supermarkets. And there were very bad things happening at the bottom of the supply chain. And it's really important to learn those lessons. So, you know, those are those are the examples. If you look at the overall ecology of enforcement and compliance, the law and the and the nature of the law and the apparatus of compliance and enforcement is a big part of it. Public information is a big part of it. The role of trade bodies, trade associations is a big part of it. And the role of larger organisations in making sure that there isn't something murky going on within their supply chains is also an important part. I think that's a, a really interesting jumping off point, actually, because you know, if I reflect on, I'm coming to the end of my term on the Law Pay Commission, which sets the minimum wage now. And if I reflect on the, the journey of the Law Pay Commission over the last just over 20 years, and of course you were involved in the Blair government and there at the beginning of all of this, one of the things that made the national minimum wage a success in its first period was it had three big things behind it. One, it was really, really clear what the minimum wage was, and that, was, that made communication with individual workers easier. Secondly, there was almost a cultural thing in the business community of we're all in it together. And if he's paying less than the minimum wage, he's not only mistreating his workers, he's undercutting all of us. And that has to be kind of self-policed in, in quite a serious way. And then thirdly, you did have, you know, the, the enforcement, which was allied to the HMRC, which is a body that was used to getting into 
companies in quite in quite a robust way and and that clarity is was easier because at that stage the minimum wage was one maybe two or three rates of pay as things get more complex my supposition would be that those three things don't go away we just have to get better at them so yeah i I welcome your challenge back to to us because i think it's it's really important that the rec stands for something and i genuinely believe it does and it's why we talk about making great work happen but we can't rest all on our laurels and that especially in a time where and i think it'd be interesting to get your take on this matthew in a time where our labor market is making a very rapid shift from a dynamic which it's been in for you know a long time of relative tightness high employment rising wages although not at the kind of rate that we would have wanted for much of the the uh, the last decade and into a period where we might be about to see much higher unemployment which of course changes the power dynamics in a lot of these workplaces really important point neil and and of course you know, it, it's a reminder of the fact that that the context is always uh, changing, and w- one can think of three examples of that changing context. So one is technology, and of course the growth of the gig economy, platform economy, online recruitment. These create new regulatory challenges, and you know they're they're hard to respond to. And we need to become better at responding more quickly, I think, to those kinds of shifts. Secondly, as another example, is we have a new immigration regime coming in next year. And, you know, that will have an interesting impact. On the one hand, it will mean that uh, there will be fewer migrants coming here from Central and Eastern Europe and many of the areas we're most concerned about in terms of labour abuse particularly the kind of really hard end, often involves migrants from those countries. So it could be argued, all thing, all other things be equal, that reducing the flow of people from those countries will actually reduce the challenge. On the other hand, as we've seen from the pretty limited success of persuading UK citizens to go and work in the fields in the last few weeks, if you cut off a supply of labour that employers need, the danger is that they will find that labour by whatever means necessary, and that can open the door to unscrupulous labour providers. And then thirdly, you're absolutely right, Neil, another really important changing context is going from a tight labour market to a loose labour market. And again, all other things being equal, you would expect a loose labour market and an economy in difficult circumstances to make things more difficult. Firstly, because there will be more people who are more desperate to work on whatever terms. And secondly, there'll be more businesses who are willing to cut corners in order to survive. And so I absolutely agree with you that we have to recognise that the context for enforcement and compliance is shifting. And I've got a question. I know this is this podcast is you asking me questions, but I've got a question for you, Neil, because I'm really interested as you come off the low pay commission, you know, there was an argument, I think it was made by some quite respectable places. I think Paul Johnson at the IFS might have made it as well as we went into the pandemic, which was that the government should maybe pause the latest increase in the national living wage because of their economic circumstances. The government is committed 
as we as we know, to raising that minimum wage level to the point at which effectively we abolish low pay because it'll be two thirds of median earnings. Do you think that within the low pay commission and more broadly, there will be a sense, as it were, and this is not a phrase I would use, but a shorthand that we can't afford these increases in the minimum wage in a context of massive unemployment and economic dislocation? That's a really interesting question, Matthew. I have to watch what I say because I've got one. I've been extended to the end of the year because no one else wanted to to face into these questions right now. I suppose. I think the, the the there's a really complex range of factors at work in making a decision about what happens now on the minimum wage. Obviously, the national living wage move in April went ahead. And, and government committed to that. We made our recommendation before Christmas last year. I think there are a few bits of this that we'll need to weigh in the balance. And right now, the mood on the commission is not to prejudge anything because we can't really see what the economy will look like um, in September, never mind in April next year. The effect of this recession is different to other ones that we've seen in the labour market because it's much more geographically even in terms of uh, jobs impact, uh, with the exception of very high tourist areas like the Lake District or uh, Cornwall, where, where I would argue that you know low income is actually has always been prevalent and it, it is rather better hidden than some of the other places we tend to talk about when we talk about long, low income workers. But it's much more sectorally specific in sectors like hospitality and retail, which are traditionally big entry-level sectors that employ a lot of people and which are affected by the minimum wage. So on the one hand, you've got a a clear question there about employment levels in some pretty heavily affected minimum wage sectors. On the other end, you've got people working in care, where there's clearly a very different set of circumstances over the last three three months, and you've got the balance of the long-term commitment to raising the minimum wage with the fact that we don't really know where we are right now on the impact of the the percentage of median earnings that the minimum wage is because the award that came in in April was designed to hit 60% this October. It's pretty clear that because of everything that's going on, it's going to be more than 60%. So my, my conclusion from all of that, it probably it's time to let the commission and the the wider group of stakeholders who work with the commission find the kind of discussion in the social partnership that doesn't trade away raising the minimum wage, but which also takes into account where we are. I mean, Aaron Dubid, when he did his review for Philip Hammond on the potential of raising the minimum wage, said it, the most important thing is always to advance, roughly a paraphrase, is to advance, but to be able to check back and just test operate as you go. And I just think this might be a test operate year as a commission. We are not rushing to judgment right now because I don't think we can. I'm sort of fascinated by your response, Neil, because I think that one of the things I think we do need to return to as a country is the weakness of our sectoral arrangements. You know, it is one of the things that is very different in many parts of Europe, for example, is having strong sectoral, national sectoral arrangements where deals are done between employers and employee organizations uh, and which are you know implemented pretty effectively across those uh, sectors and what's interesting to me is listening to you talk about 
you know, absolutely rightly about the different way in which things impact on different sectors and looking at the way in which, you know, certain sectors have particular problems which are specific to that sector. And that's something that's really come home to me in this director lane market enforcement role. You know, our strategy this year will focus on four areas of particular concern, which were hand car washes, horticulture, construction and social care. And when you get into the conversations about those sectors, yes, there are common characteristics and common features, but and one of them is complexity of labour supply chains. You know, it's generally speaking, that is a problem wherever you see it. Or it's not, it's not a problem, it, it is a vulnerability wherever you see it. But also there are problems which are very specific to those sectors. And, you know, I think, you know, I agree, I think, with what you said about the right approach to the low pay commission, which is to observe and to watch and to see and to maintain a focus on on improving the minimum wage, but in a way that is responsible. But I also think that if we had those strong sector arrangements, you could imagine the possibility of saying, well, actually, we can't afford to raise the minimum wage for everybody right now, but we are going to raise it in the social care sector because we want to send a signal, for example, about our commitment to improving labour quality and people's working lives in that sector. But we don't really have the scope... We don't just go to that partly for the good reason you gave, Neil, which is that we don't want to complicate things by having lots of different minimum wages, but also because we just don't have that kind of sectoral tradition in this country. I think that's a fascinating insight. And I'm, you know, we might disagree or we might agree on kind of the, the appropriateness of kind of sectoral collective negotiations or discussions on different things. But what I do think has come into a very sharp focus during this period is the importance of a proper institutional framework. And if you look at what happened at the heights of the onset of the crisis, particularly around the role that was played by the TUC and the affiliate trade unions and the CBI and their their 150 trade association members, including the REC, what you saw was very quick action around things like the furlough scheme around things like C-bills, the, the loan scheme, was disseminated very quickly through the whole business uh, community. And I assume the same is true on the trade union side because we had an institutional framework to do it. And there were a couple of months where things were being run in through, through those frameworks in ways which we haven't exploited in other times. No one's counselling for the corporatist UK here in terms of going back to the days where everything was decided in a, over beer and sandwiches. But, but there is room for that, that debate to be taken a bit more seriously. And I don't just mean by government. I think by, by businesses, by business organisations, by unions as well. And, and just finding a, a, a sort of a path to have discussions about the really difficult issues. If I think uh, think to some of the really big policy successes in the labour market over the last 30 years, you know, automatic enrolment into pensions is a classic example. That came about by a very similar process of you know bringing everyone inside the tent and saying you know, no one's going to get everything they want here, but we've got a shared national problem. And I'm, I'm hoping that as we come out of this, there'll be a bit more of that. Yeah, well, I completely agree. And look, you know, beer and sandwiches, Neil, you're a lot younger than me. 
I mean, this was 50 years ago. You know, we need to get over it. Mm. You know, that was a time, you know, when the industrial economy of Britain was crumbling. You know, we had an oil shock. You know, we had the IMF making decisions for us because of the level of kind of virtual bankruptcy. Although actually, by today's standards, it doesn't look so bad. But, you know, that was a long time ago. And corporatism, corporatist institutions are accepted in other countries, not just by people on the left, but by people in the right and on the centre, as just being good governance. And in some ways, helping government because government doesn't have to do everything itself it can devolve some of these issues to precisely as you say to the institutions to the social to the social partners who can generally speaking to come to resolution themselves and of course you know one of the things you see in those processes is of course trade unions and it's good to see trade unions coming back into fashion but you see trade unions very willing to make difficult decisions, sometimes sacrifices on behalf of their members when we face economic adversity. So I, I'm completely with you on that. And I hope that, you know, now we have a government that is willing to quote Gramsci. I mean, I, I noticed Michael Gove quoting an Italian Marxist in his speech on Saturday night. Now we have a government that seems to have thrown ideology out of the window in most areas and open, be open to new ideas and experimentation. Well, you know, they should think hard about the fact that we, we need to get over our memories of the 1970s and create the institutions that will serve as well now. I think the big challenge to that is when there isn't a national crisis to take on, is government comfortable with the fact that not everyone in its rooms will always agree with, with them? I mean, we've seen we've had a mass kind of demonstration of that where for a period, you know, my former employers, the CBI, were othered for daring to have a, a, a slightly less rosy view of a no-deal Brexit than than the politicians. And I think there's a kind of maturity that will come with more of this work happening that will help drive us forward. And and of course, it won't solve everything, but it does. It it creates, I think, a an opportunity to to do some things which are actually running with the stream of the market it, you know if i think about the markets that rec members serve there's a kind of a niche and high skill professional services part of the sector that which is uh, where you know setting yourself apart service led not transaction led is is critical there's also a a high scale a staffing part of the sector and I think everything you talked about earlier about the importance to big clients of supply chain transparency plays through into the market increasingly asking for some of the some of the signals that the maybe the government would also like there is a reason the big retailers support the GLAA is because GLAA licensing is one of the ways they can assure themselves that they're that they're not not doing anything wrong in what is a complex supply chain. And indeed, our discussions with business in the agriculture, horticulture sector suggests that some of them think the licensing regime isn't as strong as it needs to be. So, you know, you're quite right. It can often be market actors, you know, and indeed to take another example of this in relation to the question of kind of bogus self-employment, as I often point out to people, the groups that have most passionately argued with me when I was doing my good work review about the need to clarify employment status were the companies that were employing people as they should employ people, and but were being undercut by companies doing exactly the same work who were 
portraying their staff as being self-employed and therefore being able to avoid employers' national insurance. So I think we completely agree uh, on this now. Now, predictably, I, we've gone off script and we've meandered all over the place. I've got time for one more question, Neil. Ask me one more question. One more question. Okay, our listeners are typically going to be owner-operators or leaders in recruitment businesses. They're staring down the barrel of a pretty weak market right now. But, you know, they're REC members, so they're committed to trying to do things the right way. What one or two things would you suggest from the desk of the director and and uh, overlooking the ES? What one or two things would you emphasise to them uh, as good steps to just making sure they're getting things right at a time like this? Yeah, I mean, I won't go into the kind of specificity of kind of practice, because, of course, you know, what I'm bound to say there is just make sure that you're observing the spirit as well as the letter of the rules that apply to you. But in a broader sense, Neil, I think I'd say two things. One is, I think it is important to continue to make the argument, what is sometimes referred to as non-conventional employment. So that is to say, you know, employment, which is not about people having long-term permanent contracts. That, that That isn't always, indeed, it isn't mainly a inferior alternative, but it is an effective way that works for employers, but also often works for employees. And I think that, you know, that is not an argument, I would say that 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 the sector is necessarily winning, I very often spend a lot of time on platforms, kind of having to argue with people that that the, the proportion of the workforce that doesn't work in that classic kind of you know, nine to five long-term permanent employment for a single employer, that, that that doesn't mean that all those people are oppressed, put upon and, desi- and desperate to work in that way. So I still, I think it's really important to continue to emphasise that the flexibility of our labour market is not a one-way street just for exploitation, but is also because there are many people who want to work in flexible uh, ways. And then the second part of the argument is the one I made to you earlier, which is, you know, you've got to crack down on bad practice. Because that argument that non-conventional forms of employment are problematic is always enhanced when we hear of very bad practice. And when that very bad practice is associated with, you know, complex labour supply chains, arcane institutional and organisational forms, where people don't really know who's employing them and don't really know who's paying them. And, you know, it looks as though the whole structure is being created in order to to kind of diffuse accountability and transparency. So, you know, I think that those are the kind of complementary sides of the strategy that, that, that you need to pursue and that I suspect you are pursuing. Thank you, Matthew. And I'm delighted to say that that tomorrow is the deadline for a couple of potential partners to to come back to us with some ideas for how we do that first bit in terms of explaining better the value, both economically and socially. And I think that's important of what what the, the sector delivers. And I mean, we've talked periodically about this and it goes to the core of the REC's mission that good practice and high standards and reviewing and renewing both our code and our compliance test has to be part of the solution because whatever comes out of this whole period, we're going to have a big debate about what work is and how we work and what fair treatment is. And it's really important actually 
to the economy, but also to loads of people who want to work flexibly and in different ways, that we make the case for that diverse labour market, which of course has always been a driver of high employment here in the UK. Matthew, thank you very much for joining us this afternoon. And I, I enjoyed our slightly meandering run, uh, run around. You're very welcome to join us anytime on the REC pod. Thank you, Neil. It was a pleasure. And thank you for uh, joining us for today's edition of the REC podcast. If you've enjoyed this, a couple of other episodes you might uh, like to take in. Episode 25 looks at uh, managing ownership structures and fi- and finance for recruitment businesses in a, in a time like this. So looking at market mergers and acquisitions and things like management buyouts with our uh, friends at KPMG. Or you can try episode 24 on leadership in a time of crisis featuring Susan Close, the Chief Executive of ACAS. Thanks again to Matthew for uh, joining us uh, this afternoon and thanks to you for listening in. Join us again on another episode of the REC podcast. Thank you for listening. We hope you found this episode helpful. Head to our COVID-19 hub on www.rec.uk.com forward slash COVID-19 for the latest guidance on managing your business during these unprecedented times.